Well, it is good to be in the house of the Lord, such as it is. I do wish to welcome each of you to our live stream. We thank you for your faithfulness in joining us uh, this way. Whether uh, you've thought about it or not, this marks ten weeks uh, since we were all together in this room on the Lord's Day. And uh, that might seem like a long time ago. That might seem like a short while. I, I think, depending on the way you look at it, it could seem either one. Things are so different, uh, confusing. You just add to the list. This is, uh, well, we've never been here before. Uh, but I thank the Lord uh, for allowing us to do the best we can with what we've got, where we are under His grace, and I thank you for your faithfulness and your commitment, and uh, glad to be together again on a Sunday morning, uh, even if that's electronically. Uh, the, though, uh, let's see, we're a couple of weeks away from Memorial Day weekend, and uh, last year we made our switch from our series in John to a summer series. We're going to do that a little early this year. We make that change of pace today. And uh, I'd like for you to, to turn with me to the book of Jonah, a small book. You have to be careful not to turn right past it. And as you're finding your place, I would mention that even though the holiday known as Memorial Day is yet ahead of us, uh, this is the week in generations past that Wake Chapel would observe its Memorial Day, where... Uh, graves in our cemetery were marked or decorated uh, in remembrance of those that have gone on before us. Uh, lots of churches in, in history would refer to this as something like Decoration Day, where they would decorate these graves. And uh, if you download our bulletin for today, that button is right near the uh, screen with the live stream, uh, you'll see the names of those that have gone on to be with the Lord since last year this time. And usually we make mention of those, and uh, we do so today. But Jonah, chapter 1, is where we'll begin. And I want to read to you uh, at least through the first six verses, though we're only going to look at the first three as far as our specific study. Uh, but this is... The word of the Lord through the prophet Jonah, verse 1. Jonah 1, 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may perish not. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a song that reminds us of our sinfulness. But the fact that your mercy is more, Lord, we ask that you, that you brighten and amplify those themes in this book as we read. Not only about a sinful nation, but a sinful prophet. And how your mercy covers our sins, no matter who we are or where we came from. Show us your grace, your mercy, your love. Show us yourself in a very familiar story. And Lord, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. This is a familiar book. And um, I think when we take a break from something like the Gospel of John, last year we looked at Judges, which had its amount of adventure. Jonah does as well. It's a very dramatic book. And of all the stories in the Bible, if, if I were to mention Adam and Eve, you're probably gathering in your mind other thoughts that are attached to those two names, like a garden and a snake and uh, an apple, even though the record of Scripture doesn't tell us it was specifically an apple, but that's what the coloring books use, so that's what we remember. And if I were to bring up other names, like Noah, of course, Noah has to do with the ark, and Moses, well, we got a movie there, so we can think of the whole plot line with the basket and the bulrushes, and then growing up with a pharaoh, and then ten plagues to get his approval to go into the, the desert to worship God. And then there's uh, the Ten Commandments, the Red Sea before that. What about Daniel? Lion's Den, right. Uh, let's see, what about Zacchaeus? Sycamore tree. He's a wee little man, he was short, right? We know all these stories, much of them all the way back to Sunday school when we were children. And if I say the name Jonah... That's probably as instantaneous of a reference point as any story in the Bible may have. And it's going to do with a great fish or a whale. Even though as a younger, literally minded kid, I'm thinking, it says fish. And we learned in science class that a whale's a mammal. It's not a fish. But really, and there's some interesting thoughts that go along with that. And the generic word in Hebrew used for fish but then when Jesus refers to Jonah in the New Testament, the word used by Matthew to describe what Jesus said actually carries the idea of a sea monster. So the story's even bigger. But what we've got here, as epic of a story as this is, and I, I have all the, the I have no problem using the term epic, even though that term is awfully misused these days most time it's used it doesn't deserve it at all but in this case it does but to think of that as what makes this book epic would be the wrong conclusion this is four chapters 48 verses a minor prophet at that but it's much more than a story about a fish that eats a man god isn't only sovereign over that great fish He's sovereign over a great storm. He's sovereign over a vine. He's sovereign over a worm. And that's just getting started. 
By the end, we're going to see the wholesale repentance of a brutal nation at the sound of the word of God. Not to mention a crew of salty sailors who worship even before that. That's what this book is about. Not only a book about a great fish, but a book about God's sovereignty over all creation. Plants, animals, people, nations, and most of all, disobedient prophets who are on his payroll, I suppose you'd call it. It's a book about a loving God and how through a very sinful and painful process, one man came to understand the true character of the God he had served for so many years, but didn't fully know. That would be Jonah. So let's take a few minutes and uh, go over some background. This is, after all, an introduction, and uh, introductions should have their measure of background. Not too much. We don't want this to be characteristic of bad introductions that are at the same time very boring. But we do need to make at least a few notes. The grand theme, we've, we've touched on it so far, is the Lord as a God of grace, mercy and love, who desires to save all people. That's the theme of this book. Not a fish. Not the Ninevites, not even Jonah the prophet, but the grace, love, and mercy of a God who desires to save all people. Chapter 1, he rescues sailors. Chapter 2, he rescues Jonah. Chapter 3, he rescues the nation of Assyria through its capital city, Nineveh. And then there's Jonah, which seems to be the contrasting point of the whole theme of the book itself, because with Jonah... He loves the Lord's salvation and mercy as far as its application to himself. But he has nothing to do with wanting to give that same mercy to his enemies. And that's the glaring contrast in this book. So the book of Jonah is a timeless contrast between God's mission to redeem a lost world and man's mission of self-preservation. You might summarize the book like this. God's trying to save the world. Jonah's trying to save himself. That's what we're looking at over these four chapters. The big question of the book is actually the last question of the book. Where God asks, in effect, should I not show mercy to others, even those that you don't think deserve it? And no answer is given. The, the, the book shuts before the answer is given. It's a rhetorical question to Jonah who's angry. The question is left for the reader to answer. That's what we'll be doing in the process of this study. The book itself is named after its main character. It's always good to look at author and date and audience. Jonah the son of Amittai is how the main character is described, named after a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel. Prophets came from both the northern tribes and the southern tribes. This book is one of the twelve, as it's described historically, titled so uh, by the Hebrews as part of the twelve minor prophets. Now, to make a distinction between a minor prophet and a major prophet, really a lot of assumptions are 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 transferred over to that term minor as opposed to major that shouldn't be imposed. Really, it is only 
a way to describe the size of the record. It has nothing to do with the importance of it or the authority of it or the fact that it's inspired scripture. All of those are the same. But when you hold up Jonah with its four chapters against a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel, which are massive books, those are major prophets because we have access to a a sprawling message, oracle from, from God to various groups of people. This is just Jonah being asked to go to Nineveh with a very simplistic message, but it's nonetheless Inspired, important, and authoritative. But Jonah is one of these 12 minor prophets. We're not told who wrote the book, though many speculate. A lot of scholars think that Jonah wrote it himself. We're not told when it was written. But we do have a reference as to when Jonah lived In 1 Kings 14, we find another place in the Old Testament where Jonah is mentioned. And there's no uh, worry as to getting another guy with the same name. They're both described as Jonah, the son of Amittai. This is verse 25 of 1 Kings 14. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo, Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke... By his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So we also know where he came from. And given the dates of the reign of Jeroboam II, this takes place around the first half of the 8th century B.C. So we see Jonah mentioned in at least one other Old Testament book in connection with the reign of Jeroboam. Where else do we see a reference to the book of Jonah in the Bible. We covered this not so long ago. Jesus uses the story of Jonah as the only sign that he's going to give the adulterous and and, and rebellious generation. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the earth for three days. So you've got a reference in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the New Testament, by the word of the Son of God Himself. So this will go a long way in helping us with some interpretive issues that come up from time to time as to whether or not what we're looking at uh, is actually a parable or history. We'll come back to that in a moment. Make sure I don't... Mix my pages up here, which I'm inadvertently trying to do. Although the opening verses of Jonah sound like the opening verses of a lot of other prophets, a lot of them start this way. What happens after what seems the standard, standard introduction, the word of the Lord came to, and then insert whichever prophet you're reading, what happens in all the other cases as you begin to read What are known as the oracles of God. The message to be delivered to whichever group of people. And for most of the others, most of the record is this message. But Jonah's different than this. What we get after the first verse is the story of Jonah himself. And how he went about delivering this message. How he, at the beginning, ran away from it. So what we've got in this minor prophet is largely narrative 
a story, which is why it's so interesting to read. Uh, we read through Jonah a whole lot quicker than we read through some of the other prophets. They seem clunky and cumbersome and repetitive. Again, no less authoritative or inspired or important. But this is unique among all the others. And a brilliantly told story at that. You'd have to really invest some time into the literary devices that are contained here to see that this is not just something thrown together in an afternoon by whomever wrote it. Perhaps the most impressive literary device is the parallelism. And that's in addition to contrasting characters, plays on words, lots of questions. Again, most of them left hanging in the air for the reader to answer himself. But the parallelism is what's so interesting. And, and this is not what you're taught in Sunday school as a six-year-old. You've just got to see the parallelism in Jonah's prophecy. No, you talk about the fish. But when you're grown up and you've been schooled, and you should know what parallelism is, it's interesting to see the, the trouble that the author went to to make this a unique way to study Scripture. These are the words of God. Let me just give you a sneak peek. and You can make notes if you want to. It, it's easy to keep track of, but probably not easy to verify as I'm telling you this. Save that for this afternoon uh, when you're working on your notes if you want extra credit. In verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 3. And this would be chapter 1 and chapter 3. A lot of similarities. And then chapter 2 and chapter 4 have a lot of similarities. But 1 and 3 is the most vivid. In both verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 3, God's word comes to Jonah almost verbatim. It's almost like it's a repeat of the same verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, if you also look at verse 2 of chapter 1 over against chapter 3, God's message is given. Same thing. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. You get down to verse 3. Again, both chapters 1 and 3, you get Jonah's response. And this is where it changes. Chapter 1, he runs away. Chapter 3, he does exactly what he's told. You get down to verse 4 and 1 and 3. You see God's warning, where in chapter 1, it's a, it's a storm that is, is hurled onto the sea to warn Jonah that he's made the wrong move. And in chapter 3, it's a warning against Nineveh that they'll be destroyed if they don't repent. In verse uh, 5, you've got the pagans' response. In chapter 1, it's a ship's crew casting lots, asking questions. In uh, chapter 3, it's the people of Nineveh. You get down to verse 6, you've got the pagans' leader's response. The captain of the crew, or the king of Nineveh. You get down to verse 7, both chapters 1 and 3, the pagans' response was actually better than the response of Jonah to the message that he's supposed to be delivering. And it goes on and on. Chapters 2 and 4, the first 10 verses, have a lot of similarities. But this is, this is trouble. We want to throw a fit in high school over a one-page book report. This is hard to do. There's a reason for this. It's to make it memorable, to make us think. And also to show us that God is in control 
no matter which side of what's going on is taking place, obedience or disobedience. Well, we'll come across this again. And there's one other thing I want to mention before we get to verse 1 of chapter 1 in uh, our explanation or exposition to seek to understand first and then obey. When I was studying for this, I think I mentioned this, I don't remember whom to, deacons or on Wednesday evening, but I was amazed at how many sources since the 19th century, that's about when it changed, are more comfortable studying this as a parable than history. Up until the 19th century, no one believed it to be anything other than history. But they want to say, well, it's just too many miracles. And the miracles are just way on out there. It's probably just meant to be something to be looked at as a parable or allegory. But what's funny is that these same people, when they're expounding other parts of the Old Testament, like the adventures of Elijah and Elisha, when they're floating axe heads and calling down fire and uh, all these other crazy things, if you're going to call miracles crazy, flaming chariots. No, that's okay. This is too far. You can't breathe in a whale's belly. Well, axe heads don't usually float either. And if you can't, if you're not ready to pay the price of admission, that's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and none of this stuff makes sense anyway. And if he did create a big fish, I suppose he could figure out how to allow a man to survive in it long enough to learn a lesson. So this study from this box over these next few weeks are going to be taught as this is very much history. We do believe in a God big enough to work with a big fish. So that said, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Wherever we read the word of the Lord came to someone in a setting like this, it indicates the authentic mark of a prophetic ministry. We're reading prophecy here. And it's the usual way of the accounts of biblical prophets begin. Nothing unstandard about any of that. It also means, in every sense that we see it, generally speaking, that something is about to happen to someone. Usually it's in the form of a warning for a group of people. That's the way prophecy is usually rolled out. And sometimes the... The, the actual uh, result of it, what's being predicted, sometimes happens close range and then long range way down the road. Uh, and that's another topic uh, for another time. But this is what we are seeing here. The word of the Lord came to him. We aren't told how the word came. Sometimes we are in other prophecies. It's described about how it, 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 it comes to them and, and what they feel about it. It's described as a burden or a fire shut up in one's bones or a bitter tasting uh, thing when it is eaten. Um, it can be very colorful, but not here. The, the pace is very quick and the drama is applied to certain areas, but not others. 
And we aren't given any background information as to what Jonah was doing when this came. Or how this goes in reference to the other words of the Lord that came to him. And there's some interesting study there, being that he's a northern prophet. And that he was a prophet under the reign of Jeroboam II. And there were other prophets who actually spoke out about the military exploits of Jeroboam II. Where it doesn't seem that Jonah did. Or at least if he did, we don't know about it. So maybe Jonah's known, his reputation is for being hawkish rather than dovish. As far as this specific enemy, that would be speculation. But it might be something to think about. None of that is given to us as far as background. We immediately get to verse 12 where he's given his instruction. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Whether you're looking at the first part of the sentence or the last part of the sentence, uh, there's nothing complicated about that sentence. This is a perfect example of something that um, God could, like some parents may use. What part of that did you not understand? Very simplistic. Nothing ambiguous, nothing veiled, nothing couched, nothing hidden. But it is quite different from other prophets in one specific sense. Up until this time, no Hebrew prophet had ever been sent out to speak to non-Hebrew people. They had had things to say about non-Hebrew people, but were never sent to those non-Hebrew people. They were only sent to God's people. So in this way, Jonah's mission is quite unprecedented. And the original readership of this, Jewish people, Hebrews, reading This is not anything like what we've read before. This is different. So what do we know about Nineveh? We've got some specifics here. We don't have any background on Jonah. Very little. Or how the word of the Lord came to him. But we do know that he's going to be preaching. And he's going to be preaching against Nineveh. So what do we know about Nineveh? It was a very old city. About as old as they get. And uh, we know that it was built by Nimrod. And uh, when I just said Nimrod, some people probably grinned. We use Nimrod as a way to insult folks, right? And that's interesting because that hadn't happened but here more recently. Because Nimrod was not an idiot. Nimrod was, was quite the, the mythical persona in the Old Testament. And mostly with the... Veil of evil over him. I had to look this up. Because I just had to know. Why does the Bible talk about one Nimrod. And everybody else uses it as a joke some other way. Well you can owe that. As best as those who. Try to figure out how words. Change their meanings over time. You can owe that back to Bugs Bunny. And Daffy Duck. In the 30's and 40's. By making fun of uh, Elmer Fudd with his rifle on a hunting trip. And how he was no Nimrod. The great hunter before the Lord. As Nimrod is described in the Bible. But he's the one that built Nineveh to begin with. Very old city. He was uh, the one responsible for what would eventually become the capital or the chief city of Assyria. Assyria. 
And Assyria had been a constant threat to Israel at this point in history and would eventually carry the nation off into captivity, though there was a weak period in their power of about a generation. And some scholars want to say that it's quite possible that in this weakened state, this nation was very open to any type of hope, looking at the fact that they may very well be the victim of uh, the very treatment that they had given out to other nations along the way in building their power. Um, Instead of spending time, which is what most studies in Jonah, when they get to the Nineveh part, will do, is explain how awful this group of people was, or were. How cruel, how brutal, um, giving details as to their military practices in brutally defeating those that were their enemies. Uh, I think it'd be better to save all that. Um, It's hard to say, it's hard to hear, it's hard to wrap your mind around. Um, I thought it might be better just to read to you from Nahum 3. This is another minor prophet. And this is the word of the Lord given to Nahum about Nineveh. So this is what God says or thinks about their behavior. Woe to the bloody city. This is chapter 3. All full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and offer the countless whoring of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betray nations with their whoring and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, I will lift up your skirts over your face and will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Who will feel sorry for you? When you're gone. That's rough. That must be a rougher group of people. So at this point, you have to just try to imagine yourself a Hebrew. Assyria, Nineveh is your arch enemy. It's only a matter of time before they carry you off into exile. You don't know that yet. But the dread and the fear and all the thoughts that come into one's mind as they hear the word Nineveh or Ninevites. How could a good God give a nation like this even the slimmest chance to realize His mercy? But that's what we're going to see Him do in these four chapters. It was this nation that God wanted Jonah to preach against. 
Yahweh is represented here as the Lord of all nations, which is different than most nations operated. We've got our God, and you've got your God, and our God's better than your God, and that's why we're going to defeat you. But if they didn't work out that way, you know, they might blame it on their God, or they might decide to worship the God of the enemy who routed them. But in this case, the Lord is the Lord of all nations, to whom all nations are morally accountable. What did he say? Their wickedness has come up before me. I've noticed. So if Nineveh is great in the book of Jonah, God is greater. But that's not how Jonah sees it. It'd probably be worth writing down. If Nineveh is great, God is greater. But that's not what Jonah believes. Look at verse 3. What did he do? But Jonah rose to flee. That's the title of the message. Jonah rose to flee from, or to, Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. That's three times that city's been mentioned. And then here's the second time, away from the presence of the Lord. This is parallelism. Things set over against the other to make it stick in the mind. So God said, Arise, go to Nineveh. In verse 2, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. In verse 3, God says, Get up, go to Nineveh. Jonah gets up, but goes to Tarshish. This type of move was not totally unprecedented. Uh, Elijah ran for his life from Queen Jezebel. That was temporary. What is unprecedented here is no prophet of God ever actually quit. This is Jonah quitting his calling. He's fleeing from the presence of God. Not the presence of Jezebel. Or the presence of Nineveh. Now Tarshish was located on the coast of Spain. Hebrews were landsmen. They kept sheep. They made tents. They farmed. And they fished on the Sea of Galilee. But the Sea of Galilee is not the Mediterranean Sea. They didn't have ocean-going boats. Uh, fishermen in small boats were their own crew. This, this is different. And that this Hebrew would entrust himself to the likes of these seafaring merchants and get in their ocean-going ship is quite telling. It's, it's amazing what we, what we will do or, or what fears we will face to get away from a larger fear. That's what he's doing here. Tarshish was the exact opposite direction from Nineveh geographically. Uh, one author explained this as if a Jewish man in New York had been commissioned to deliver a message of warning to the Germans in Berlin, but instead took off for San Francisco and got aboard a ship for the South Pacific. That'd be about the equivalent day or modern day move. So why did Jonah refuse to go when all the other prophets, no matter what they were told, were obedient? Well, we'll actually have to wait till Jonah 4.2 to hear his answer from his own lips. And uh, mark that down if you want to look at it later. You may have already read it through. 
But that's where we're going to see the answer to this question. But let's just look at it from here at the outset with all the conventional wisdom we can try to apply in our thinking. It still comes out as an absurdity. As long as you just think through the basics. Who's going to listen to Jonah in Nineveh? How long would a Jewish rabbi have lasted on the streets of Berlin during World War II? Telling the Reich to repent. It's not going to work. What good would it do the testimony of Jehovah? To save the, his own chosen people's cruelest enemy. What would it say to Nahum's prophecy? What about that skirt over their heads stuff? You can just imagine what's going through the mind of this man named Jonah, veteran prophet who's been given what he seems to be a nonsensical, if not absurd, list of orders. Now the account of verse 3, and we already read through that. If you were to look at that again, I do believe that the reader is meant to be under the the cloud of a foreboding dread as he reads this story, especially those with some background, maybe not for the person who's never read this before, ever darkened the door of a church, but even as kids sitting on the floor with the Sunday school teacher and the flannel graph. By the time you get to verse 3, but Jonah ran away. He, he rose to flee to Tarshish. It just seems to be getting worse and worse. But that dread that's building is not from the direction of Nineveh. It's from the direction of the God he's disobeying against. And even the words, the directional words that are being used here begins to layer on uh, the 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 color of dread here. But he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Went down to Joppa. If you notice that. He went, he went down. And then he paid the fare. I can remember sermons I've heard from this book. And how sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay. It will always take you further than you want to go. It'll always cost you more than you want to spend. This wasn't without its cost. He, he paid the fare. And when we sin, we always pay the fare. But he's gone down to Joppa, paid the fare, went down from the dock into the ship. And when we travel to the coast, we're always descending in, in, uh, down to sea level um, as far as elevation goes. And I'm sure that the, the dock... It was a little higher than the boat. And then when he gets to the deck of the boat, he goes down into the boat. And then after he's thrown over the side of that boat, he goes down into the heart of the sea. All of these downward words are meant to explain what happens when we try, as this last statement explains, away from the presence of the Lord. It's always a downward move. It's always a scary move. It's always dreadful. 
foreboding. We, we watch people we know drift away from the Lord. That's never a good feeling. It's always a dreadful feeling. But that's how the story is setting up. And it all traces back to the last phrase, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, that's where we're going to stop our study today as far as what we're covering. Now let me give you some conclusions to what we've read. And uh, some of these will build and uh, they'll be useful just for what we looked at today. One of them, the third, is going to be useful for us going into uh, studies in weeks to come. Um, in fact, the, the longer we study, the more useful that uh, point will become. And there are more than these. There's, there's thousands, we could say. But let me give you some that I think jump right off the page. Number one, in conclusion, an attempt to understand and obey what we've studied so far. Here it is. Often enough, our problem in obeying God is not that we do not understand what He is saying, but that we do. That's wordy. I'll read it again. Often enough, our problem in obeying God is not that we don't understand what He's saying to us, but that we do understand what He's saying to us. That's the problem. In this case, God could not have been more clear. Arise, go, preach against them. Jonah didn't need his Hebrew lexicon in his study to unpack all this and see what it means. It's obvious what he was said. Jonah had no trouble understanding what the Lord had required of him. In fact, the reason he ran was because he understood it very clear. All of those things, arise, go, preach against them, uh, they're all imperatives in the Hebrew, which means each one of them could have its own exclamation point. This is what I want you to do. This is for you, Jonah. Go do this. Each one of them, an imperative. I think that's the problem. Because I don't think I like imperatives any better than Jonah did. Do y'all like imperatives? That's being told what to do. It's prescriptive. How many of you would rather trade the imperatives of the Bible for a, a, a fine new copy of suggestions from the Bible? And Moses came down from the mountain with the ten suggestions. They're commandments. These are commandments. And that's our problem. We don't like commandments. We like suggestions. Because we can take those or leave them. You tell me. I could get in trouble here. But haven't these past couple months been a good exercise in our evaluating our own allergy to prescription? I mean, how did it start? You hear some rumblings about another virus comes from China, from a market you'd never shop in, though you might want to walk through it like Ripley's Believe It or Not or something like that to gross out the kids. But then to hear, no, 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 this, this thing is spreading. Okay, so is it like MERS? Is it like SARS? Is it like Ebola? Uh, how about the transmission rate? All right, what, what about the... Uh, 
the scary side of it. What's its mortality rate? And then we see it spread across places, and then we're all told, wash your hands. Lots of soap, 20 seconds, sing happy birthday twice. We can do that. It's a good idea anyway. Probably keep us out of trouble in the flu season as it is. No big deal. It's a good suggestion. But then it got to where there are other cities growing faster than where we live. And they're telling folks not to meet in groups of 100 or more. And then we find out our, our sports are canceled. Okay. I'd rather watch it on TV empty, but you, well, you don't have to cancel the whole thing. All right, this is getting real. Look, I just touched my face. I know there's probably some of you counting every time I touch my face. The face touch count for the live stream. But when it got to the point where, okay, we're going to go from 100 down to 50 and then down to 10. And if we notice that this isn't being respected... We'll make this a proclamation. It wasn't a week's time before all of this is codified. And then stay at home. I remember when it happened and trying to figure out, all right, what does that mean? And for a week, all the articles, what does stay at home mean? What can you do? What can you not do? And then we're all faced with, okay, is this this a law? Am I going to be arrested? Uh, What if I think it's important and somebody else doesn't? It's a good exercise. We, we chafe at prescription, command, authority. We'd rather pick and choose based on what's important to us. And as we face a reopening phase, that's what we're going to have to ask the Lord for wisdom for. Um, and what will serve us well through the whole thing? Treating others like we'd want ourselves to be treated. That's about just as difficult as commandments versus suggestions. Because just like Jonah, we all excel at serving ourselves. We have to work at serving others the way we would want to be served. So uh, we have our work cut out for us. This is nothing new. Same with Jonah. I think I know better how to handle this. Well, take this second conclusion and layer that on top of this other. It's another way to look at it. Some of it overlaps. But in addition to uh, understanding exactly what Jesus or God says in His Word, and that's the basis for why we say no. Number two, our refusing God's command always involves our mistrusting His goodness. We know He's good. And if we all had a pop quiz, good church people, is God good? Of course He's good. Is He good all the time? Yes. Then why do we listen to things He says for our own good and say, no, I think I know what's good for me. If Jonah had a problem with the task he was given, he had a bigger problem with the one who gave it to him. Those two have to be connected. Jonah had decided that since he could not see any good reason for God's command, then there couldn't be one. Which is no different than what happened all the way at the beginning with the first man and the first woman who was put into a garden and were told, this is the first command, the first not suggestion. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. After a conversation with the snake, they all realized that God forgot part of what he should have said. And that was a reason why they shouldn't eat. Because as we see the story, Eve says, well, it, it's good for food. And it looks nice to the eyes. And it's desired to make one wise. So what they do? They ate it. Because they couldn't decide or see or discern a reason why it would be a bad idea. Since they couldn't think of a good reason why God would withhold it from them, they mistrusted his best interests for them and did what they wanted to do. Number three. And this is one that we'll use for the weeks to come. And uh, you can see the beginnings of it here in what we've studied. But not the whole of it. But I'll mention it now so we can build on it as we go forward. There are actually two ways of running from God in the book of Jonah. That's the third point. In the book of Jonah, there are two ways to run from the Lord. You say, well, I just see one way. He did that in chapter 1. No, he's running from the Lord in chapter 3 and 4 as well. Just in a different way. And what's going to take us many weeks of careful study over four chapters of this little book of Jonah we could see this a whole lot more clearly, and we will in our studies on Wednesday when we get to it. When Jesus described through the parable of the two sons what we're going to see here in the book of Jonah. Now, 99 out of 100 times, it's not called the parable of the two sons, it's called the parable of the prodigal son, right? But we've got this bad habit of taking parables that Jesus gave us and focusing on only half of them. He had another brother who had just as much a problem with his daddy as the runaway did. In fact, it might have even been worse. You got two boys with a hard heart toward their father. One of them is on his sleeve. The other one is in his heart. And it's going to take a while toward the end before you actually see him play his card. But when his daddy uses the uh, other half of the inheritance, spending some of it on the boy that took the first half, the son at home explodes in anger. And he says, you never did any of this for me. I've always obeyed you. I've always done everything you ask of me. This isn't fair that you do this for him when you haven't done it for me. And what he built in his heart through obedience, was this notion that his father was in his debt, that he owed him something. And what we're going to learn is that in the first two chapters of Jonah, he's playing the runaway. He's taking everything he's got and getting as far away. He's going to do what he wants to do. Eventually, he's going to return in humility and shame and brokenness. But then no sooner do we turn over to chapter 3. Do we see him flip personalities. He's going to play the other brother. The other brother who's going to show everyone how obedient he can be. And tell them exactly what he was told to tell them. And then puts his little tent up on the outside of the city. Hoping to watch the place burn. And when it doesn't burn. He gets mad with God. 
totally blind to the fact that he's been given what he's got by God and has the audacity to say that I deserve your grace and mercy, but they don't. Both sons are seen in the book of Jonah. That's probably not something that you expect, that the parable of the prodigal son will be our guide to interpreting one of the Old Testament prophets. But it's uncanny the way the two of them line up. And really, it's not only in those two locations. In Paul's manifesto to the Romans to explain theology of salvation by grace through faith, before he gets to chapter 3 to explain how all this works, he starts to work in chapter 1 on how wicked the planet is with those who run away from the Lord ignoring the light that they've been given through creation and this whole laundry list of, of wickedness that, that's surely sticking to each of their accounts. That's one way to run away from God. But then in chapter 2, he describes the Jews who have this pride in obedience to the law that was given them. And then after looking at both of these, the, the, the pagan Gentiles and the Bible-believing, self-righteous, moral Jews, he concludes there is none righteous, no, not one. They're all guilty. They're all destined for the judgment of God except for His grace. But one group out of that looks more like the older brother and the other looks like the runaway. They both have heart problems and God's going to send His Son to pay for the sins of both. None is righteous, not even one. That will have to wait for the weeks to come and we're going to enjoy ourselves, comfort ourselves and learn ourselves a lot about ourselves in doing this. So this is enough for today, but i leave you with this, just, just to consider. Is this not a grand example of how the Scriptures can never be outgrown? I mean, what, what is fascinating, wondrous, and awe-inspiring for my six-year-old at home? A big God and a big fish is equally condemnatory, convicting, humbling, eye-opening, challenging to his daddy who heard this when he was a child. And to think of one who's commissioned, called to explain the scriptures and faces the very real challenge of picking and choosing between, all right, what do I want to say as opposed to what God wants to say, what would I like to do as opposed to what God is doing already? Or having my own notion as to who's qualified to receive grace, who's worth a witness, who's worth uh, having nothing to do with. Who's my neighbor is also a huge theme in this book. Tucked away in the story of Jonah and the great fish? Absolutely. 
because it's tucked away in every last corner of the Scriptures. We'll never exhaust them. We'll never outgrow them if God gives us a millennium to live. So thank the Lord for His Word. Let's pray. We'll sing a hymn, and then we'll have our benediction. Father in heaven, we thank you for an epic tale, a narrative, a runaway, disobedient prophet who's humbled, changed, very dramatic, painful fashion, who obeys, but in some way thinks that he's owed something or is qualified to sit in judgment of others only to ask the towering question, who's in charge of grace? Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving wretches like ourselves. Break our hearts with what breaks your own. Give us the ability to share that grace and love, small ways and large, with any and all who need it, our neighbors. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.